This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. I'm honored to have with me returning guest, Dr. Lee Hood, a scientist whose work has led to new advances in the fields of human genomics, cancer, and Alzheimer's research. Before we get started, Dr. Hood, how are you doing today? I'm in great shape. How about you, Bob? I'm, I'm pretty darn good. I'm enjoying the first snows of the winter season. We got a big uh, dump last night, and we're always happy to have moisture. Absolutely, yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about your background so that people can understand why you're the guy that we would want to talk to about aging. How did you get interested in anti-aging research, or maybe we don't use that word anti-aging, but healthy aging research? Well, I I think it's uh, the accumulation of a lot of different interests. I have, early in my career, been very interested in developing technology. It's like automated DNA sequencing that made the Human Genome Project possible. And, and the importance of these technologies is this idea that Humans are terribly complicated, and if we're to decipher this, uh, these complications, we have to be able to generate an enormous amount of data on humans, and obviously determining your DNA sequence generates a lot of data. But we and others have also developed technologies that will let you assess what the genome is actually doing to you, as well as the environment and your own behavior by analyzing the proteins and metabolites and blood and the gut microbiome, that is the billions of microorganisms that live in your gut and have an enormous impact on both your health and it turns out the process of aging and everything. You know, we've gone from it taking how long to sequence the human genome to machines that could do it in maybe a week to now these little handheld devices, they can do it pretty quickly. Well, they're getting to the point where you they'll be able to sequence genomes in one or two days. And that is the remarkable departure from the first genome, which, you know, overall was a 13-year project, the, the Human Genome Project. And even more remarkable, the cost of sequencing has come down more than a million fold in the last 20 years. So you can now new genomes for uh, a few hundred dollars a genome. Uh, and of course, the first genome probably cost north of a billion dollars. So it was really the creation of these new opportunities of deciphering complexity in humans that got me initially interested in the process of aging. I had a colleague at ISB, Nathan Price, whom you know, who also was very interested in this area. And together, we joined our labs and we attacked longevity and aging and Alzheimer's and 
precision population health and a whole series of different kinds of things. But with regard to aging, I think it's it's really a remarkable process to study. What What is most remarkable is that the mechanisms that induce aging appear to be highly conserved from a single-celled organism like yeast all the way up to human beings. So I think the pr problem of aging is maybe a hundred times simpler than the problem of cancer. And I think it lays itself out in a conserved way and, and a very simple kind of way that lends its analysis to not only thinking about how to assess aging, but how to optimize aging so we can either slow the process down or perhaps in the future be able to reverse the process. And of course, those are two absolutely fascinating questions. Your discussion brings up kind of a core issue, I think, which is that one way to look at aging is that it's just wear and tear, right? You live long enough, everything's going to break down and fall apart. And then there's another perspective which says aging is a thing in and of itself, right? That you can study worms and yeast and, quote, lower organisms, and you actually see that there's some kind of genetically driven metabolic pathway or set of pathways that are controlling aging. And I think one of the obvious implications of that is that certain animals seem to live forever. You and I have talked about that before. You've got these naked mole rats that seem to not get older when their chronological age is older. I wonder if you could talk about that distinction between chronological age and biological age and what that means exactly, because I know you've studied biological age. We know that some people age very rapidly and other people age extremely slowly. So it is utterly clear chronologic age is not an index of how rapidly or slowly you're aging. And, and Nathan and I started thinking about this whole process of we need a metric that assesses how rapidly we're aging. And he and I studied together a population of 5,000 individuals where we did their genome and their blood analytes and their gut microbiome and digital health measurements. And they ranged in age from 21 to greater than 90. We were able to divide them into 10-year bins, 21 to 30, 31 to 40, so forth. And we were able to show beautifully that as you aged, the envelopes of control for the expression of the analytes in your blood decrease in efficiency in a linear fashion. And without getting into any details, this led us to an algorithm that could determine one's biological age. So the age, uh, biological age is the age your body says you are rather than the age your birthday says you are. And obviously, your biological age, the lower it is relative to your chronologic age, the better you're aging, okay? So one of the first... So that's a good thing. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. Lower is better. Yes. So one of the first things we did to confirm that is we looked at this population, and, and basically this was a population where we were trying to optimize their wellness and not mm -hmm. their aging in the initial 
uh, stages. But what we demonstrated, strikingly enough, is over the four years that we studied this population, women actually lost a year and a half of their biologic age per year they were in the program. So over the program, they lost six years of biological age, and the implication is they were aging better and better as they did it. And men lost about a year. And we think the difference might have been more due to compliance than biology, but we don't really know. But the important point was this biological age is a metric for aging and at the same time, a real metric for wellness. And we went on to demonstrate beautifully that you could also assess the biological age of your major organs like the liver and the heart and the kidney and so forth. And because the algorithm used metabolites in the blood, we were able to deduce actionable possibilities for different individuals that uniquely let them optimize their biological aging. And so I think this whole idea of slowing aging is one of the really major factors to dealing with chronic disease. It, and in fact, a young scientist at Harvard, David Sinclair, who's one of the key pioneers in studying aging, made the calculation that if we can, in the human population as a whole, delay the aging process by just one year, we can save something like $13 trillion in the healthcare process over time. So you're saying a, a lot of really important things here. One that stands out kind of at the top is that aging is some kind of process, right? That it's physiological mechanism that we can unlock with the right kind of information and data and that we can do something about it. We can we can affect it. And And I remember that discussion being held around Alzheimer's disease is that Maybe if you live long enough, you will eventually get Alzheimer's disease. But if you change the curve even slightly and you don't get Alzheimer's disease until you're 125 years old, then you may not care. So that it's not about us eliminating these diseases or stopping aging. It's not about living forever. It's just about slowing down the curve. Uh, so I, I hear that as part one. And then part two is you say there are all these metrics that we're discovering I know from reading your papers that the things that that you're using to determine biological age are not esoteric. They're not things that, you know, you can only get at one lab in Belgium. They're things that, that most any lab can measure. And I wonder if you could talk about that, because that's a I think that's a really important take home issue for people. The, the stuff you're talking about measuring uh, is not hard to do. Well, I, I can talk about it. And one way to talk about it is saying that by manipulating your the uh, metabolites in your blood, at least certain of them, mm -hmm. you can change the whole aging process. And that's one approach that uh, we're really interested in exploring in, in detail. But another absolutely fascinating study that we carried out a couple of years ago was looking at 9,000 individuals that are older in the 60, 70, 80 plus year age and analyzing their microbiomes. And what we discovered was 
if you are a healthy person and are aging in a healthy manner, two things change in your gut microbiome. The first is that the core populations of microbes that populated your gut in your 20s and 30s and 40s disappeared. And the second thing is each healthy individual carved out a unique microbiome that looked absolutely unique for different healthy people. In, in contrast, the unhealthy people, one, never lost those basic core microbiomes, and two, did not individually differentiate into these unique species. And, and what was really remarkable is we looked at healthy and unhealthy individuals uh, in their 80s over a period of four years, and we determined that the unhealthy people were three to four times as likely to die over that period of time as the healthy one. So one of the really interesting questions is, can we identify drugs or molecules that affect these master switches, and in doing so, would affect multiple of these features of aging? And indeed, it, it does appear that there are uh, two drugs, uh, according to animal studies, rapamycin being one and metformin being a second. Yep. That, uh, and those affect two different control mechanisms, but they both have some very interesting effects on the hallmarks of aging. And big clinical trials have been carried out in dogs, in mice, in yeast and a whole variety of different things. And, and the results are, I think, especially for rapamycin, really quite remarkable. And of course, the really key thing is having clinical trials in humans that assess not only the positive effects of rapamycin toward aging, but whether it has side effects and complicating factors that we don't know about in these these are things that will take a few years to determine. But I will say there are across the country uh, a number of physicians who are actually subscribing these drugs to sets of their patients with the proper warning and, uh, and, and following the results in appropriate fashions. And I think this opens up the very exciting possibility that in the future, we will really be able to have very profound effects on the aging process. And as we can see, that's going to have a big influence on uh, preventing chronic disease. This is all really exciting. Uh, I think having followed that rapamycin research for a number of years, you know, I get very curious about how we can mimic that effect, maybe by using diet, maybe other agents that alter that mTOR pathway that rapamycin seems to affect. So I'm always curious about how to reverse engineer these things and say, is there some other way besides the drug that we can do it? Uh, but first, we got to understand how the drug works, which I think is, uh, is it Dr. Matt Caberlin that's doing a lot of that research in Seattle? In dogs. Yes. Dogs. Yeah. And, and these dogs are living longer and healthier. You know, it was really interesting. He just published a paper I read about in the last few days where he has a very large population of dogs that he's uh, 
followed now for, I don't know what it is, probably 10 years or so. But what he was able to demonstrate that was very interesting is that dogs really can make people healthy because they force people to get 10,000 or more steps a day. And that really improves your health uh, outlooks if you can do that. Having dogs that age well and people that age well can be very complimentary. Yeah, it makes, it makes a really good case for going out and getting a dog now. You talk about these three regulatory pathways. It seems like they're all tied up in nutrient metabolism, either blood sugar, blood glucose metabolism, or protein metabolism. I know that, you know, the mTOR pathway is involved in like construction of things, like building proteins, et cetera. Is it fair to say that that this aging process is all wrapped up in those two things, uh, glucose and protein? Maybe a gross exaggeration, but... I think it's fair to say they're very fundamental parts of this process. You know, the the explanation David Sinclair in his, his wonderful book, Lifespan, is that primitive organisms very early had to learn when nutrients and the environment was hostile to shut things down. And conversely, when life was good to open them up and have DNA replication and reproduction and all those things. And he argues it's the shutting down of these phenomena that is what blocks the aging process. All right. I think we're going to need to take a break right now. And when we come back, we'll answer some questions from our listeners. When it comes to your health, your body deserves the best. That's why Thorne invests in comprehensive testing, sourcing the highest quality ingredients, and creating the cleanest manufacturing processes that will provide unparalleled solutions for your health. It is this approach to quality and science that has earned Thorne the trust of more than 42,000 medical practitioners, as well as 100 plus Olympic professional and collegiate sports teams. It's also why Thorne is the only supplement manufacturer to be chosen by Mayo Clinic for collaborating on clinical research and educational content. Discover the quality and science that leads to a happier and healthier life with Thorne. Visit Thorne.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, what are the markers that you look at to determine biological age as opposed to chronological age? Obviously, chronological age is based only on your birth date. But what when you talk about gathering big data, multiomics, genomics, are there ones that really stand out uh, as being particularly important? Well, there are two ways to determine biological age. One I described earlier, and that is actually taking a small amount of blood and analyzing certain metabolites that are in the blood that are a part of the algorithm that gives that individual's biological age. A, a second approach to biological age is to actually look at the epigenetic modification of an individual's white blood cells. And 
there, there are levels of modification that correlate with uh, different degrees of age and the aging process and so forth. The enormous advantage of the first measurement, the blood metabolite measurement, is it leads to actionable possibilities that will let you make your biological aging more effectively as an individual. What is different between the metabolic determination of biological age and the epigenetic determination of biological age is that the former also leads to actionable possibilities that will let you facilitate the aging process and hopefully increase the the distance between your chronologic age and your biological age. And it will do that for some of your major organs as well, which is uh, very useful. You can have a very reasonable biological age globally. Thorn is a, a company to which Nathan and I actually license the algorithm for determining biological age now. And from they have a test that can determine your metabolic biological age and assess your organ biological ages and give you recommendations about how you can improve them. So I think the biological age is going to be a very useful concept for optimizing and assessing how we can optimize the aging process. I, I have to say that I did the biological age test through Thorne and was pleased to find out that I was about 10 years younger biologically, uh, according to those markers. And then I also did an epigenetic aging test through another company and got very similar results. So that was pretty gratifying to see that concordance between the data. And as you point out, the biggest difference was that with the Thorn test, there were some specific things that were recommended, some dietary strategies, et cetera. Whereas with the epigenetic clocks, which were developed by Steve Horvath, that I believe is at UCLA, and now uh, you know a lot of other people have gotten on that bandwagon, it's not quite as clear what one needs to do to change epigenetic age. There, there is some research along those lines, but I, I think it's less straightforward. I agree with that. So mainstream medicine says one thing about aging supplements, and I assume that that one thing they're saying is that in mainstream medicine, they say supplements are not even worth pursuing because in the animal studies, they haven't really shown benefit. But the next part of the question is, isn't all of this on a spectrum? So maybe you know, at one end of the spectrum, you've got powerful drugs like rapamycin, or I think there's a derivative called Everolimus. Uh, so rapamycin is serolimus, and then there's everolimus that uh, does very similar kind of things. This person is saying, you know, isn't it possible that supplements do something maybe not as powerfully as the drugs? Well, I my own uh, view is supplements are an important window through which we can optimize health. I think the challenge in dealing with the general question of supplements is some individuals would like to test many and say none of them do anything, just as it would be impossible with a drug if you tested uh, 50 or 100 at one time to say what did what. So it would be with supplements. 
And that means if you're arguing supplements don't work, you have to understand the test was carried out. And what was it done in the context of a single supplement or all sorts of supplements? And most of the studies I've seen have had multiple supplements. And gosh, I think uh, the complexity there makes it impossible to draw any conclusions unless you're extremely clever about it. And that's why all I'd say is if people make those general statements, go back and look carefully at what they've done and, and determine whether that really makes sense or not. But it's one thing to say X doesn't work because you can test X very carefully. And I, I'd be very skeptical about global statements that a whole class of compounds don't work with regard to facilitating health and optimizing wellness and balancing out healthy living. So a lot of people, when they get older, they talk about how easy it is for them to bruise. You know, they just bump into something and they, they you know, suddenly have this big bruise in their arm or their leg. What are some of the factors that lead to these extrinsic indicators of aging like fragility? What do you think are the, the biggies that could actually accelerate this aging process? Well, I, th I think it's major systems that become disbalanced, okay? For example, one very classic one is the immune system. And it's a very complicated system that not only deals with protection against foreign invaders, but a part of it also is a very complicated system, a cascade system called complement. And that leads to blood clotting and to fragility of uh, skin and things like that. Uh, I think another area that can certainly go out of kilter, and, and my view is that Alzheimer's in the end is going to turn out to be a metabolic disease uh, very similar to uh, diabetes, and its causative factors are, are going to be abnormalities in metabolism. They aren't going to be driven by things like tau and amyloid proteins that are a consequence of the process and not a cause of the process. And in that regard, you know, we've had now almost 15 years of more than 500 failed drug trials, and almost all of them were pointed toward these amyloid and tau kind of proteins. And frankly, no one pill that can modulate those things is going to be able to deal with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is going to require multimodal therapies because uh, that's how we're going to redress the metabolic balances that are consequence of uh, this disease. Now, I've, I've heard the phrase bandied about for years that Alzheimer's disease is diabetes of the brain. Uh, do you think there's some truth to that? Absolutely. And, and just as we learn to deal more effectively with the uh, metabolic abnormalities of diabetes, and, you know, frankly, we don't do a very good job now with diabetes, which is a disease. 11% of Americans have diagnosed type 2 diabetes. Almost a third of them have prediabetes, which is the foreshadowing, moving to an active diabetes. And we need to think of ways of much more effectively dealing with diabetes early and reversing its uh, causative factors at an early stage before you have frank clinical type 2 diabetes. 
The same is true of Alzheimer's. We want to be able to say, you are on a pathway that's going into Alzheimer's in five years or 10 years, and we'll take you off this pathway right away, okay? So we're, uh, it seems like we're on the verge of being able to come up with a kind of virtual model that mimics the processes involved in Alzheimer's and use artificial intelligence to actually predict what the effect a certain intervention might have. Am I correct about that? You know, that is true. There is a model called digital twins. And basically what this digital twin model does is it integrates from the top down our mechanistic understanding of Alzheimer's together with the physiology of, of uh, Alzheimer's and from the bottom up, the biochemistry and genomics and phenomics of Alzheimer's. And what we get then is a detailed model of the abnormalities that are embedded in Alzheimer's. And what these digital twins can do that are really interesting is you can digitally create a million twins, which represent different variants on this metabolic picture for a million virtual people. And we can look at how changing aspects of this picture changes the outcome of diabetes. Alternatively, we can actually take all of the data of an individual and put it into this digital twin, and it can begin to make an assessment of where the abnormalities are and the kind of things we'd have to do to restore metabol metabolic normality. So the digital twins can both create a gazillion models and test all sorts of things, and they'll be able to take in the, the complicated detailed data from individuals and make assessments and recommendations about uh, prevention, optimization, modification, and the like. You know, it seems to me that that, I mean, this is fascinating and, and amazing, actually. This is going to change how medicine is practiced, being able to use these digital twins. And that addresses the issue you brought up earlier when we were talking about supplements. And, you know, we can't really study one supplement at a time and think that that means something. We've got to look at an entire lifestyle intervention, which I think you called scientific wellness. Here, what we could do is take the million virtual people and we could give them each different supplements and see what that did, right? That's Those are the kind of experiments we'll be doing in the future. It seems like that's really where this whole notion of scientific wellness is going to go too. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, We're going to be making the digital twin that will optimize all the features for wellness. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about wellness is that most of us, uh, healthy people now, probably represent 30% of our potential wellness. And there are many things you can do to further optimize that. And the benefits of optimizing it, the energy it takes is, is not trivial, but to optimize those benefits means for sure you're going to be moving into the 90s and 100s, mentally alert, physically capable, 
you're not going to have to think about retirement if, if you don't want to. But if you're mentally alert up into the hundreds, playing golf and tennis for 40 years of your life as your major activity, I think would get terribly boring. But, you know, I'm not adding to those. Maybe uh, I, I could be criticized for that. Maybe people could love doing that. I mean, the point I'm making is this gives us the chance to be creative and original and to use what we've learned in a lifetime to fashion new opportunities and new possibilities and uh, all of these kinds of things. Well, well, I've got to say, um, talking to you really opens a lot of doors of possibility for me that, you know, it, it seems like the sky's the limit on, on how we can use these new discoveries about biology and aging to help our patients and to help improve health span, not just lifespan. You know, what's going to be a really critical part of this whole new regimen that we will have for uh, aging and for Alzheimer's and for wellness is we each have to realize that in the end, we are the captains of our of choosing the pathway for our health trajectory. And that takes on a lot of responsibility if you want to do it well. And uh, so Nathan and I have actually just written a book on what 21st century medicine should be that'll uh, at Harvard University Press that'll come out in April. And I would urge people who care about these things to read that book because it says clearly the many different kinds of things you can do to take responsibility for uh, for, for guiding the trajectory of your own health, uh, your own wellness. Your and the own title health. of that book is going to be? So it's The Age of Scientific Wellness. It's by Nathan and myself. The Age of Scientific Wellness. So we'll be on the lookout for that for sure. And meanwhile, if people want to follow what you're up to, because it seems like uh, you're on to some very exciting things, how do they how do they keep track of what you're doing? Well, I think the best way right now is I've created a nonprofit called Phenome Health that's proposing a second genome project that'll be paid for by the government. And Phenome Health has a website that has lots of these things described. Wonderful. Well, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Dr. Hood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and we love to have you back on someday in the future. We can do it. Okay. Excellent. As always, thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Health. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.